0: But we also have this strange notion that there just ought to be enough time to do all the things that do matter to us. So we assume that if something feels like a really important priority in work or an important relationship in our social networks, that there just must be time to do them all. And we might have to say no to all the things that don't matter, but we surely don't have to say no to things that do matter. And there's just no reason to believe that, right? I think that actually the real difficulty of living as a finite human often is is realizing that you can't do everything that, that matters.
1: Hello. And welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that millions of people are a part of. And today we're going to talk to one of those people who's bringing all kinds of insights to the process of how we think about time. Today's guest, Oliver Berkman is an author, a journalist, a speaker, so many things. His work is all about a really fresh approach and helpful perspectives about the passage of time. Not so much time management, but how we feel about our time spent. And so welcome, Oliver, to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Well, I'm so excited about your times. I have to let everybody know that I just finished a 19-hour drive with you virtually (laughs) sitting in the seat beside me, this drive across America that I did. I chose your book, and I tell you, it was so special. By Chapter 9, I just stopped listening, and I said, i got to start all over again when my husband's in the car. It's, it's good to hear. Yeah, it's the kind of book you can listen to someone who's who with with someone who's very close to you, and I am with all certainty. I'm sure we're gonna spend time differently together after listening to this book
0: together. Oh, it's nice to hear. Thank you.
1: Yeah, so, thank you so so much for sharing these insights for, with the world. I have to give you a little bit about Oliver's bio so you can appreciate where this these concepts come from. Oliver has been he had a, a column for the the Guardian for a decade. He's been New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, so many places, writing and adding his, his insights to a really positive narrative about what's possible for us all. What I'm experiencing today is probably much like all the people in the pandemic, all of us in the pandemic are, about this struggle with time. It feels like we're just running through this moment to set up something better for the next. So talk to us a little about the book and the book's called, I should say, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Now this, when I saw, read that title, I knew it was for me because we all, we, we all are mere mortals in the face of the complexities we're experiencing right now.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely. And we've been mortals forever and we always will be. So it's, uh, that subtitle is really just my attempt, I suppose, to try to marry the field of time management with this kind of grand philosophical question of our mortality and our, and our finitude. I think on some level, everything in life is a question of time management. So it's funny that it has this reputation as being a kind of a narrow-minded thing, very specifically focused on how to get through your work or, or how, to, how to organize your day. Like, What is life, if not a challenge of time management? We have very little of it, and we have to uh, try to use it in the wisest ways that we can.
1: No, and that's, that was the essence of this column that you wrote for The Guardian for a decade. Your column was called, This Column Will Change Your Life. And I think it was mostly about time management, or at least the search for Finding well-being, mental well-being, in the scope of our, the pressure of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it began to be absolutely honest with you. It began as a sort of, a, it began as a slightly more cynical undertaking than it became, because my thought was to sort of look at all the sort of self-help in the uh, books on how to be happy, books on positive thinking, which I already knew I would find lots of fault with, and to be sort of humorous, hopefully, about them. And I did that, and I continued to do that all the way through um, writing that column. and the, And the, the title of that column was. As I often had to explain to people, meant to be a little bit sardonic. I wasn't planning to revolutionize everybody's lives on a single edition of it. But, but what actually happened in my experience was that the more I went into this world and sort of expanded the remit of the column to take in philosophy and social psychology research and a little bit of um, spiritual writing, religious writing, was that, you know, yeah, it was fun to mock the excesses of this sector, but there were also things in there that were worth passing along to my audience who I assumed were sort of fellow cynics, really. So in a way, uh, that column was a process of me me becoming more sincere as I, uh, as I wrote it and as I got older, which may not be a coincidence.
1: Well, and I think that's why I think I found some major credibility in diving into the book because I knew that you didn't go in it with rose-colored glasses and that you've been working in this space as a critic. I mean, you know, the, the best critics in the world can be honest, when they've been a bit transformed by something they originally were
0: critical of. Right. And then the other thing that sort of started happening, which was very much where the the genesis of this book was, was that I, I used, I did look at a lot of time management techniques and productivity systems, and I became what they call a productivity geek. You know, somebody who is really obsessed with trying to get a handle on their time, become the most efficient, optimized person that they can. And as I write in the book, it's a little bit like being a alcoholic employed as a wine reviewer. You know, it gives you a bit of a, it's a bit dangerous and enabling to have a a column where your job is to sort of indulge this slightly neurotic quest to feel in control of things. And in a way, this book is what happened when I realized I was never, this was never going to result in success, right? It's uh, what's on the other side of uh, a failed quest for control and perfect efficiency and never having to drop any balls and never having to disappoint anybody. And you know, I came to a point where if I tried a hundred ways to do it and it still wasn't working, maybe there was something wrong with the uh, the quest rather than that I just hadn't found the solution to it.
1: I think that's what pulled me in more and more with every passing page was this realization that that we all are on this quest to get that to-do list done or to manage all these works in progress. Or then, then we have this constant barrage of new things. It's that whole, that, you know, that grid that people talk about the urgent versus important Mm -hmm. grid. Mm -hmm. And if you're operating on the bottom where nothing's urgent or important.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right.
1: Our to-do lists are full of those things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. There's almost a worse point in a way, or a harder point that I think I'm often trying to make in this book, which is like, we spend a lot of time on things that don't matter to us, and, we, and I have a, have a hunch as to why that we can talk about, but, but we also have this strange notion that there just ought to be enough time to do all the things that do matter to us. So we assume that if something feels like a really important priority in work or an important relationship in our social networks, that there just must be time to do them all. And we might have to say no to all the things that don't matter, but we surely don't have to say no to things that do matter. And there's just no reason to believe that, right? I think that actually the real difficulty of living as a finite human often is is realizing that you can't do everything that that matters. One really vivid example of this, I always think, is sort of good causes, charities, people and crises around the world that deserve our attention. Yet they really do deserve our attention. But we live in a a world especially mediated by social media and online media, where a, a good, generous person who wants to help in these things is definitely going to be exposed to more such things than they could possibly get their arms around. So you're in this uncomfortable position of having to Neglect things and neglect causes and neglect projects and goals that are perfectly legitimate uses of your time. You just have to choose because you're finite and if you want to do a few things effectively and help a few causes and nurture a few relationships, you're probably going to have to sacrifice some others.
1: Well and, and that that relates to a title in one of your blog posts that I did not get to read but I, I have it earmarked and we'll
0: talk about that reading that reading list problem as well. but
1: uh, you you say the news is not your life.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, that, that's an essay that I wrote a while ago for The Guardian, where I tried to get a handle on, tell me what you think about this, but I, I, a handle on this thing that I sort of noticed about, maybe it's like six, seven years ago now, that more and more of my friends, even the ones who weren't journalists, right, because this is maybe a natural, a natural tendency of journalists, seemed to sort of act as if national politics and international crises and everything that was going on was more fundamental to their lives than their jobs or their homes or their families or their neighbourhoods and i think there are systematic reasons why social media encourages that that notion but it's very troublesome because it basically means that you're spending your days most obsessed by precisely the things over which you have the least control and it's important to vote and it's important to speak out against political leaders that you that you think are doing terrible things but like getting angry on social media about something the president did is is not it's not it's just not ultimately it's understandable but it's not a useful way to shift anything And so we're sort of we're sort of moved into we're lured into this this place yeah where, where we're sort of fixated on exactly the places where we can't make changes I think
1: Well I absolutely do too and we're gonna we might as well start there and we're gonna keep this podcast super useful and helpful but it's good to hit some of these, these points right here that are tripping us all up. <laughs> I mean, this is so, this distraction. You say, I love this. I remember it hit me between the eyes. The damage of one distracted hour on the internet does not go away.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think everyone has this experience, right? We think about, like, if you, if you waste an hour because you got lured in, you think like, oh, I wasted an hour. But if you're like me... You'll be like chopping vegetables for dinner later on, or at the gym, or, or, or walking somewhere beautiful. We live. We just recently moved somewhere absolutely beautiful, and I get the opportunity to walk in just most glorious nature. And you'll find yourself in your head having some argument with somebody who isn't there. <laughs> they're they're just uh, someone that you saw saying wrong things on social media several hours before, or you know, if you if, if you if you spend your time sort of doom scrolling, and you come to believe that I don't know. Crime in your city is worse than it really is. Say, then you're going to go through the rest of your day more braced for something bad to happen. So, I just think it's important to see that the ways our attention is skewed by all this stuff. Um, yeah, and to be not unfair. confined to the time that we're that we're literally looking at the at right. the phone or the screen. Yeah.
1: Well, and I, that's what I loved about your book. It gave me so much self-awareness. Like you're not in this shaming mode when you're talking about anything anything that Oliver and I talk about in the book. He's never in shaming mode. He's always in well, you could think about it this way. <laughs>
0: right. Well, it would be so hypocritical because look, I, I think I have wriggled free of some of these things a bit. I like to think that maybe I'm a, a half step ahead of the average reader of this book on some of these topics, but only a half step. So, like, there is no point sitting here pretending that, like, I'm good and you're bad when it comes to, when it comes to these things because it's just not true. I mean, well, nobody I- can fight this stuff alone and in a sort of totally superhuman way anyway.
1: And, you know, isn't that the gist of a lot of the podcast world is that when we talk to folks who are a few steps up from us on the ladder of insight, you know, maybe they're just, just that far away from us. I think that's what makes podcasting a lovely medium is that mm-hmm. if people aren't too high on themselves, get real conversations with ordinary people yeah. who, who just have, for one reason or another, the life has given them a few insights up the ladder from us, and then they help us get up there with them. So that's, that's definitely where... I want to take this conversation. Okay. So, here's the comment early in the book that hooked me that I would love us to spend um some time on just overview. You say each day can feel like something you have to get through en route to a more fulfilling future moment. (laughs) I'm saying to myself, when I, when I listened to that, I went, yeah. And then when you get to that future moment that you work so hard to, you're already playing out what you should be doing right then in the moment so that you get the next cool moment.
0: Yeah, Yeah. no, it's really true. And I, we can talk about like why I, I, or I can talk about why I think we are locked into this mindset. It's, it's incredibly... There are lots of cultural pressures, economic pressures that sort of drive us to, to this idea of valuing the moment only insofar as it helps or doesn't help us get somewhere in the future. But I think at the very root of it, just to get a little bit sort of existential, we do this because it is a way to not have to feel the truth of our situation, which is that we're all very limited, we're all finite. Life is not a dress rehearsal. If you're gonna do something important and meaningful with your life, at some point you're gonna have to just like do it now. And if you're always projecting into the future, then you get to kind of keep the moment of truth safely stashed away in the future, as it were. There's this lovely quote that I use in the book from John Maynard Keynes, the economist, the great economist, who said that the purposive man, he's talking about people who live in this way, always for the future, is always trying to achieve a spurious immortality for his actions by pushing them into the future, right? So the examples he gives, he says, he doesn't love his cat, but only his cat's kittens, and actually not even the kittens, but the kittens' kittens, and so on forward forever. For him, it must always be jam tomorrow, never jam today, right? So this idea that like, the benefit of this way of living that we do, this, this thing that's been called the when I finally mindset, you know, like when I get my life in order, when I declutter the house, uh, when I have kids, when the kids leave home, whatever it is, you know, um, then things are going to be different. It serves a purpose. It makes us, it, it keeps us comfortable, but it has a very detrimental effect, which is that it endlessly defers the time when you're going to like actually do the thing you think you want to do with your, with your time.
1: So the converse of that is what?
0: Well the the aspiration at least is to is to live at least partly for the moments that you're actually living. I don't think it means that there's something wrong about building things for the future or working on projects. It's about trying to see the value In the doing and in the journey, as well as as well as in the destination. Now that's hard, and I do have a whole chunk in this book about like how people just kind of telling you to be here now and live in the moment is really annoying and doesn't work. And I've tried it, and it just leaves you less uh, in the moment. But so so I try to get myself first of all, and then people reading the book to this point, not by saying like oh just chill out, be in the moment, but but by by sort of making it so clear that the alternative is. A losing path. Sort of. My main technique, I feel like, throughout this book is like I'm going to overwhelm you with how pointless the thing that we do naturally is, and eventually maybe you'll just be like, okay, I'll do the other thing instead. There's a there's a Buddhist. Uh, there was a Buddhist teacher called um, a British-born Buddhist teacher called G. U. Kennett who said that her method of teaching students was not to lighten the burden of the student, but to make it so heavy that he or she would put it down. And I really like that whole approach, you know, let's just point out to ourselves how futile is the thing that we're trying to do with time. And then it's easy to just, easier to just like put that down and be here instead.
1: So that is the gist of how it feels when you're making this clever point and this aha moment and so forth. I I love this whole concept. You right off got me when you told I've, I've even shared the video with the jar and the rocks. (laughs) <laughs> so all of a sudden, I have a completely reversed position on that. Talk, talk to us about that. Most, many people have seen that. It's like an analogy about time, right? Talk us through that.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, I don't think that the original parable of the rocks in the jar is terrible or that it doesn't have any wisdom to teach us, but, but I also sort of object to it. Yeah, right. So the, the idea, just in case there's somebody there who's been living under a rock and living under a rock rather than listening to parables about rocks. The idea here is it has many different versions, but like a, a teacher comes into a classroom and he brings a glass jar and some large rocks and some smaller pebbles and some sand. And he says to the students, you know, um, how can you fit all these in? And the students try putting in the sand first and the pebbles first, but then they find the big rocks can't fit. And eventually he shows them, no, 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 you've got to put the big rocks in first and then you can put the pebbles around them and then you can put the sand in and you can fit it all in. And this is meant to be a metaphor or an analogy or whatever for priorities in life, right? It's like make time for the things that really matter. And then you can fit the other things in too, and you'll fit all the things that really matter into the jar. If you don't make time for those things first, if you put all the, do all the trivialities first, you won't make time for the things that really matter. And I just want to point out <laughs> that he rigged the whole thing because he only brought enough rocks to the classroom that he knew could be made to fit into this jar as long as you did it in the right way. And I think that the problem we have, maybe always as humans, but definitely in the modern era, is that there are too many big rocks, right? There are just too many things that legitimately matter, that would be legitimate uses of our time if we decided to spend that ti- our time on them. Too many things that you could totally defend as a very important priority for your life. And they're not all going to fit in the jar. So actually, the challenge is to decide which rocks you're going to not put in the jar, because they're going to have to be some. And that's a harder way to think about things because it means neglecting things that could make a good call on your time. It it means, you know, disappointing certain people, uh, letting go of certain ambitions, things like this. On the other hand, I do think ultimately it's really liberating because we go through our lives sort of desperately trying to stuff all the rocks into the jar and thinking like that we're bad people, that that we're sort of failing morally somehow for not being able to stuff them all into the jar. And I think it's kind of liberating to think like, oh, to realize that like you were never going to get them all into the jar. So you do not have to beat yourself up about that. You're not going to be the perfect parent, the perfect spouse, the perfect employee, perfect exerciser, perfect house cleaner. You could be some of those, but there are just trade-offs. So we're all in that boat. And I
1: think giving yourself sort of the the mental permission to just know that you're doing the best you can and that maybe we've got to make this these decisions with our time, almost like budgeting. Like Give this yeah. great pay yourself first notion. Talk to us about that.
0: Well this comes originally I'm sure many people be familiar with it right from personal finance where the idea is if you want to save money it doesn't work to like get your paycheck spend it on all the things you need to spend it on and want to spend it on and then hope that there's some left over at the end to save. The way to do it is when you get the paycheck, put aside as much as you think you can manage. And then mostly, as long as you're not living, you know, literally on the poverty line, mostly you'll you'll kind of just adapt, right? So if you've got a bit less money because you put some into savings, you'll find that the other stuff just, you know, is, is okay. And this uh, creativity coach, graphic novelist, who I admire a lot, called Jessica Abel, makes the point that like, it works exactly this way with time too, or it should work exactly this way. There's something that you really think is very important in your life. Spend time on a project, a relationship that you want to nurture, a cause. You kind of just have to make time for it now or this week, you know, or first, in other words. And you'll find that the other stuff kind of fits. And if it doesn't, well, okay, it wasn't going to fit. And and you just have to sort of um, deal with it. If, on the other hand, you do what I think a lot of us do, and I certainly did for years, where you say, like, first of all, I'm going to clear the decks. I'm going to get through all this stuff. I'm going to get it all squared away. And then there's going to be this expanse of time where you uh, finally get down to that. That's just never going to come. So you have to actually cultivate this capacity to almost to tolerate a kind of anxiety, right? You have to say, okay, it's 9 o'clock Monday morning or 4 p.m. Thursday, whatever. I'm going to work on this thing that I want to work on now. And I know that there are other things I could be working on. And I know that emails are coming into my inbox. And I and I know that things are being neglected so that I can do this. But it's the only way.
1: It's the only way. Oh, and I love this great, great exercise that I... It, I was so moved by the time you had gotten to that level of, of logic with me that I went and I, I did this. I don't know if you meant it like an exercise, but it's kind of a reflection that you you say you, you make a list of the top 25 things I want in my life. And I think the end of that sentence is really important because I put things like I, I want my my three children to be happy and healthy. I want my 40 year relationship with my husband to get stronger and not weaker as we get older, blah, blah, blah. Knowing what I want in my life was a little bit different than talking about what I think I need and all that stuff. So talk to us about that concept.
0: Yeah, this is a thing that is usually attributed to Warren Buffett, although the evidence suggests that probably is a bit apocryphal and doesn't really come from Warren Buffett. But anyway... This is this exercise that he allegedly advises people to do where you, you you take your top 25 goals for your life and you rank them in numerical order from 1 through 25. And the top five of those are the ones he says that you should focus on really relentlessly. But the bottom 20 are the ones that, the, the next 20 are the ones that you should avoid, like the plague, because they are the ones, they are middling priorities. They're, they're the ones that clearly have some pull on you, but are not the most important Things and so it's kind of they're dangerous because you can easily spend a lot of your time on them. Things that you kind of hate to do are not so dangerous because you you barely ever spend any time on them. But I mean, I'm going to be honest. I, I haven't recently done the specific exercise with the 25 goals. I think what that the really important principle which I do try very hard to live by is to sort of be on the lookout for things that you are doing with your day that are kind of like fairly important but not very important. Somewhat useful for the goals you have in your work, but not super useful. And so it's a sort of a different category. You mentioned before the, the. It's called the Eisenhower matrix, right? Urgent, important, not urgent, important, not urgent, not important. They're sort of like fairly important and or fairly urgent. And and they're kind of, these things are, yeah, they're, they're something to be wary of because that's where you can really sort of come to grief in your time. So a good example, just to be sort of, give an example, I'm not advising sort of dumping your friends in some cruel fashion, but we do quite often, all of us have a few friendships, I think, that take up a significant amount of our time. And yet there feels to be something sort of half-hearted about them. They're not our core friendships. Now, some you might think are developing and will be, that's fine. But like, there's something to be said for in in a tactful and compassionate way, not continuing to invest time in those things because time is too precious, right? And you want to give it to the people who you're in the deepest kinds of relationships with and the projects that you care about the most. So that's an example of something where, you know, It's not that it's unpleasant, right? You don't end up, you don't keep seeing somebody if if it's actively unpleasant to be in their company. You you do do it if it's sort of like not really serving you or them, but it's kind of not painful enough to to, to stop. And that is something to be alert to, I think. Uh
1: I think when you got to that part, it made me really think about something. I don't recall whether you said that or it was just something that popped into my mind that I always tell people that what we pay attention to expands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you made me think, yeah, expands, but there is a limit to that expansion. And what we pay attention to determines our future in so many ways.
0: Yeah, right. And it just is our life, right? What you pay attention to added up over this course of your life is your life. Uh, now, there's a way of interpreting this, which is very stressful, which is like, oh, I mustn't spend a single moment of the day doing anything other than kind of grand projects and, and having thrilling experiences. And that is not where I suggest going with this. I think that just a greater appreciation of how precious time is can, if you think about it in the right way, not be a recipe for sort of that kind of stress, but a recipe for just sort of relaxing into the moment that you're in and finding value and meaning and wonder almost whatever you're doing, because you're no longer trying to make this part of a project to do everything or see everything or experience everything. It's just a very sort of, there's something kind of humble about it, but it's also, it's so sort of, it's it's a much more sort of peaceful way to relate to, to time, I think.
1: I love the humbleness of it. Sitting with a nephew and just chatting about his high school dramas and things that are very, very big in his mind and, yeah. and just soaking it in in many ways being just present to the complexities and maybe getting some appreciation for just other lives lived.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, no, absolutely. And, it's, and I think that's part of the thing I'm really trying to get at in this book is is that, you know, one way to think about this is to have these kind of under, these insights about time and a limited time and then start doing different things with your time so that you're sort of focusing on what matters. But the other side of it is that it can cause you to just start valuing some of the things you're already doing a little bit more. You stop. You stop thinking that uh, an activity is only meaningful if it's part of some kind of huge world-changing, astonishing thing, or it's making you famous, or it's you know it's going to going to have an impact for centuries or something. And you see that, yeah, chatting with a relative, cooking nutritious meals for your kids, working on sort of beautifying a little part of your neighborhood—that's as meaningful as anything.
1: I love that you had this. Maybe really appreciate the statement you make. Very often, we're treating moments as though they're only valuable if they're laying in the groundwork for something else.
0: Yeah, right. And so that's all, it's all connected, I think, that sort of instrumentalism that we were talking about, and this idea that meaning has to be something really big and showy. It all adds up to this notion that like, you're on your way to some huge big thing in in the future, you're not there now, and... So for now, you're just like on your way, getting through stuff, getting the other stuff out of the way, whatever. And there's just, there's no need to live like that. And and in the end, if you live like that your whole life, you'll you'll never get to the to the moment of truth. Yeah.
1: And have you noticed sometimes the way people reflect about moments we've had with them? They're these small moments that we may not even remember ourselves, but they meant the world to that person.
0: Right. Absolutely. That's. I mean, that is so. That is so true my experience, for example, of, of of writing things or giving talks is that there is no correlation between like the times that I was deeply dissatisfied with an article or I thought I bombed in a talk and the times that someone will say that that was the one that made a difference to them, right? It's just like, it's as likely to be the things I thought I did badly whatever. Nobody knows. And yeah, and and it's also not always the positive experiences, right? I don't know who I'm quoting here, but I saw this quote uh, just the other day. Almost every experience in life, almost every experience in life is either a good time or a good story, meaning that most of the things that we don't enjoy in the moment are kind of funny to talk about in hindsight or something like that. So, and it goes further than that. I think, you know, sometimes it's 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 crises and really genuinely bad things that that are the things that bring people together, obviously, and that they sort of remember very warmly going through, even if what they were doing was was suffering genuinely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this concept of being present and the fact that we never really have time. I love your ideas on that. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Dr. Linda here. If you are hoping the world is a lot better than what we see on the news and social media, and if you've been overwhelmed by the misery and negativity coming from the screens in your life, I've got a wonderful connection for you. What I've learned after almost a decade of curating the internet for insight innovation is that there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. And that's what led me to create this podcast. And then I co-founded the Goodness Exchange. The Goodness Exchange is an amazing place on the internet now where you can enjoy unlimited access to hundreds of articles that give you a more complete positive perspective about the state of the world. You can listen to exclusive bonus content from this podcast with our guests who are knee deep in solving some of the world's most vexing problems and yet they still think the future is bright. We need to know what they know. And at the Goodness Exchange, you can explore a feed of exclusively good news and recommended other kinds of content created by the Goodness Exchange community. No one with good ideas and good intentions need feel alone again. You are right to hold out hope for humanity. Millions of people are out there creating a better world, and we have created a gathering place for all that wonder. Who knows what's possible now that there's a place on the internet created to bring out our best impulses and our collective genius. To explore the home for goodness on the internet, visit goodness-exchange.com backslash membership. Thanks. Okay, we're back. We're back with author, speaker, writer, Oliver Berkman. He's written a terrific book that I personally am in the middle of reading that has you know fundamentally transformed the way I think about how I spend my time, not time management. I'm really thinking about how I'm spending time, but that even that wording. <laughs> <laughs> implies that I I have time. And you're pointing out in the book that we never really have time. To expand on that.
0: Yeah, I sort of spent the first half of this book talking about how little time we have. And then I say, hang on, we don't even really have a little amount of time at all. No. We, don't, we don't have time. I mean, we use this word and it's, we use the word have in this context. And it doesn't really make sense when you think about the other ways we use it, right? So it's not like having money or having physical possessions because you never have time in that sense, other than the very moment that you're in, you have expectations about time, right? So when you say I'm quoting here, partly I'm relying on the work of a, of a blogger called David Kane, whose work I really admire. You know, he points out that when you say you have three hours to complete a project, what you mean is you expect that you will get three hours completed. complete it. You don't control that time. You don't know that you won't get interrupted. You don't know that the world won't explode in a fiery ball of, of gas. Anything could happen. What you mean is you expect it. And that's fine because often you can rightly expect it. But it means that all our attempts to sort of hold on to time and to relate to it as if it were something that we possessed in this way are always sort of generate a kind of anxiety because you can never be certain. So, you know, planning is the example that I talk about quite a lot in the book. People who sort of compulsively plan plan plan. And I think uh, I come from a family of people who who do this, who sort of try to get all their ducks in the row and want all the travel arrangements for the vacation to be sorted out months in advance. They're trying to get some kind of certainty and to sort of hold the future in their hands somehow. And because they never can, you never actually reach peace of mind through this method, right? You're always just kind of worrying that it's not going to work out the way that you feel you need it to. And then I suppose if you want to go one step further, it gets to this point where I sort of explore this idea in the book about what if it makes more sense to say that we are time instead of that we have time? But where is the separation between the span of time I have to do things on the planet and the me that is doing? They seem to be the same thing. I mean, this is getting a little obscure and philosophical perhaps, but I think it's an interesting thing to think with, as it were, because you sort of It has the potential to get to sort of end this whole notion that we have to be in a war with time. Because if you are time, then there isn't the separation that the the idea of a war depends on in the first
1: place. Well, too, it goes back to this finding ourselves in the moment. Like I can tell that going forward, I'm looking forward to a really weekend senior night with my son's college basketball years. Right. I would have spent that this weekend, starting tomorrow with the four-hour drive. Mm -hmm. I would have spent that time differently. Now we're going to use the word spent. I mean, you get to choose what you do in a passage of four hours in the car, right? Or the time that I have with him, the brief time I have with him. I think that I love this finding ourselves in each moment because I can already appreciate the fact that even on the drive, while you were virtually sitting next to me reading the book, I spent... Spent that time. More importantly, I paused the I paused the recording from time to time and just drove and thought. I would have never done that. I actually went into the book thinking what I was going to get out of it. I thought. <laughs> it- yep. Make me appreciate time better, and certainly it certainly it has. But now I don't know what 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 are your thoughts on on this finding ourselves in each moment as it comes?
0: I mean, again, I think my sort of my method here, if I have one, and and again, I'm definitely sort of trying to lead myself through this lesson as as much as anyone else is that the answer here is not to sort of. For me anyway, of people of my mindset is not to sort of have a sort of overflowing joyous embrace of the moment. it is instead to see how, how futile and how in, impossible it is to be anywhere other than the moment and to see how sort of how completely unattainable this notion is that we could ever sort of get on top of time or get or be the masters of our time, and when you begin to see through that, and you see, and you try, and you try, and you try for years, and it doesn't, and it doesn't work, you sort of naturally just sort of drop a bit more back into the moment. Somebody uh, told me the other day they thought that being in the moment. I Think there is some real research in this direction. You know that, that being in the moment is a is a sort of an experience of the right brain and being sort of trying to control time in this sort of desperate way is very much a sort of left brain thing and those all that research is is controversial i know but i'm totally a left brain person here right i'm totally the sort of analytical nerdy person but i think you can sort of use your left brain to break through to the right brain in this in this fashion by by seeing that like all your efforts to try to be anywhere else than the moment were never happening. Your, your, your worries about the future, they're in the moment too. Your regrets about the past, they're in the moment. Too. And then you can at that point, I think, a little bit more just sort of drop into it because there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> well,
1: I think it does come down to this way that we are planning all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I loved your notions. You said a, a plan is just the present moment's statement of intent.
0: Yeah. Joseph Goldstein, the American meditation teacher, has this lovely line that we forget that a plan is just a thought, right? So a plan is also something that is arising in the, in the present moment. When you get up in the morning and you sketch out a little plan in your notebook for how, for the day or whatever... There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not some kind of you're not somehow reaching into the future and, and making the future obey your intentions for it. You're just making a you're just stating your intent uh, that this is how you would like things to go to the extent that you get to influence how things go. And so uh, then you see, I think that planning is totally has a role, but the but the challenge, and it I do find it still a challenge is to sort of is to hold that plan incredibly loosely to see it as like, okay. To the extent that I get to say how events unfold today, which is limited, <laughs> uh, this is the kind of shape that I would like them to take. As opposed to, if things don't go this way, if, if reality doesn't unfold the way I decided at eight o'clock in the morning it had to unfold today, I'm going to be terribly upset because otherwise you end up. And you know, I've had this experience as, as a as a parent of a small child. Right, you you don't want to um you don't want to design a timetable for the day such that your son running in to tell you excitedly about something he did at school is a failure of the system, right? You don't want it to be that that is a problem. Something's gone badly wrong if, if like that has been defined as a negative interruption. So, you need to be able to kind of like have the plan and put the plan on hold and, uh, you know, be flexible which is certainly one of my big challenges in life and probably why I was interested enough to, in the topic to write this book. Well,
1: in a really positive narrative that you go into, I, I absolutely adored the way you were talking about the fact that our struggle is to try and turn the future into something predictable. You point out that your reach is always outside your grasp. So that right. yearning for predictability is where the system gets gummed up.
0: Yeah, and it's so understandable. Like of course that's what we want as as creatures who perhaps almost uniquely among animals can can think about the future and want things from the future and really long for things from the future, but not sadly control the future. That sort of yearning is the most human thing in the world, but it's very useful to see it for what it is. I don't mean people should just see that it's see what's going on and immediately never have to n- immediately drop any desire to Control the future. I haven't dropped that desire, but but you see what's going on, and then you can sort of go a bit easier on yourself and on other people. Yeah, I talk in the in the book about um, Krishnamurti, the spiritual teacher modern day uh, spiritual teacher who in the 1970s was at a, at a talk he was giving in California sort of offered to tell everyone present that this, his secret his one big secret and everyone that the way this was the way this was related was that everyone was very suddenly struck silent and all wanted to sort of lean in and hear what his big secret of his uh, tranquility and peace of mind and happiness was and he said my secret is I don't mind what happens I think it's really powerful thought. I think it can be misinterpreted, but I think that this basic notion that like cultivating this attitude that sure, you can want certain things to happen. You can want the best for the people you love and for yourself and politics, etc., etc. But in the end, you're just moving forwards into every moment, curious about what's going to occur rather than needing one thing to occur and needing the other thing not to occur which is just a recipe for endless anxiety and stress because as soon as one moment's past, the next one's coming along
1: yeah i think that goes along with a wonderful insight a thought later gave me on this podcast about that we should not marry an outcome because when we marry outcome we eliminate the ability to have better outcomes than we ever imagined. I mean, the serendipity that's involved in most of our lives, if we get at ease with the moment just unfolding.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it clamps down, it, it stops you from embracing wonderful things that happen. And it also stops you, it also makes you far more annoyed with slightly negative things that happen, right? I mean, living in society living in a family living working in the working world there are plenty of things that happen that are sort of a problem in some small way that I kind of wish I didn't have to deal with but if you also think that they're not just a, they're not just problematic in themselves but but the fact that They're not, things aren't going your way is a sort of additional layer to the problem. And then suddenly you've not only got problems, but you've got a problem about having problems and uh, you're just making things a lot worse for yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that especially intensified in in friction when we go into meetings or like the times we screw up the courage to have a conversation with somebody we love about something important, we go into those very often with one outcome in mind. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as things start straying, we, you know, we, we, it goes off the script. We don't, we don't naturally look for other possible endings or other possible pathways to the story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a totally understandable thing that we do, but to the degree that you can unclench from it, life goes better. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I totally, I love this concept that you said. So related to that, I love this concept of being just letting time unfold. For you, so because you never know when you're going to be in the last time I will ever. Now, yeah. this is I recently, um, I, about a year ago, broke my arm, and I'm, I've been a dentist for 30 years. Used computers in 2003, like uh, an artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the broken arm has left me with the left hand that's pretty numb. And I just day before yesterday heard that there's no way to fix it, so I lost my profession. Mm-hmm. And I really think that I, I don't have any regrets. But but think about all the times I, I last hugged a patient. Mm-hmm. Think of all the times I last, you know, did some dumb work that I'm I'm really super proud of. I, I didn't know when I was doing all those last, because I broke my arm really unexpectedly, ice skating <laughs> in the winter, trying to celebrate some joy in Vermont in March yeah. and the sun is shining. So I wouldn't I don't know if I don't think I would trade that day. That day was pretty special. But how many times in our lives do we have these we don't realize it may be the last time we pick up our kid from the school bus because they get older or it doesn't have to be these big giant, Moments, but even the precious small things. Talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, I think this is this is a very powerful uh, observation that I mean, various different people have made. I, I attribute it in the book to a talk that I had Sam Harris, podcaster and author, give. Right, our lives are necess- necessarily going to be full of all sorts of things that we are doing for the last time, and it's going to be pretty rare that we know at the time that we're doing them that it was the last time and. Yeah, this could be big things. It can be seeing a certain friend, visiting a certain place. The example he gives and that I work off of is like literally physically picking up your your child, right? Because I'm the father, I'm in my mid-40s and father of a five-year-old. And it's unimaginable to me. On the one, on the one hand, it's unimaginable to me that there would ever be a time when I don't pick him up and cuddle him. But... My dad doesn't pick me up. So clearly there is going to be a time when that, when that ends. And so that is just, it's just a sort of call to be present with the things that are happening. And in a sense, of course, you could argue that every moment is a last time because it's the last time you get that moment. This moment on this day, when we're recording this, will never come again, and it's powerful just because. Again, you know, I'm I'm repeating myself on some level, I suppose, but it's just another reminder that like this is it. If you're gonna if you're gonna do good things in life, enjoyable things, meaningful things, important things. Like it's now, and certainly whenever I can call that to mind, you know, on a hike, talking to a friend, you know, all manner of things, you get a sort of. Get a little bit of heightened sense of reality, I guess, in the, in the yeah. experience.
1: And what I'm finding just in the in the day that I've had to really live, I, I've lived one day with some of your insights. I know I've lived it differently, with a, more of a sense of wonder. The whole day today, I just yeah. had a sense of wonder about odds and ends and little moments with my dog, or it, it just this. It, the insights in your book, I know you are taking people on a journey that they could never go without you. So I am so grateful for the life that you've lived to have these insights. I know it's an ongoing journey and <laughs> like all of us, we fall off the balance beam pretty darn often, but the, the points in this book are lovely and so precious for our times. I can't thank you enough for sharing this Kenya as we wind down here you got a few like simple tips about how we actually uh, like one of the things that I loved was you said you know I I face all these big projects every day I write a few more on my to-do list and I, I love the simple suggestion that do the next achievable step you know that seems so so simple, but it is so powerful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think about this all the time, right? It gets it comes under different guises. It, uh, do the next, do the next right thing. I think I think that's what they say in in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that that's one of the sources of that. And then and and in that context, it's meant as a th- sort of a way through crisis, right? When you're in, having a bad time. And I assume it's when, you know, when there's a risk of you one losing one's sobriety that you've achieved through AA, right? Don't worry about big plans or becoming this kind of person or that kind of person. Just do the next right thing. And the source that I quote in the book is Jung, the great Swiss uh, psychologist, right? And he talks about do simply do the next most necessary thing. And what's so interesting about this to me is like, sure, it's a useful thing to call to mind in a crisis, like an AA example, but it's actually just how we, it's all we can ever do anyway, every single moment of every day, right? You can have all the systems and plans in place that you like, but all you are ever really doing is the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so the only decision that you have to make, the only really thoughtful topic that you have to sort of have in your mind, the only intuition you have to trust is like, okay, what, what's the next what's the thing to do now? And it's just a huge weight off off one's mind. You know, sometimes when I've been involved in very complicated travel say, and I have to like be in one place for some appointment, and then the next one and the next one, you, you you narrow your focus. and You just think, okay, right now, I'm just getting the train to the airport. Like, that's all I'm going to think about. And then you get to the airport and you're like, okay, right now, I'm just going to check in. Right now, you sort of take yourself by the hand in this slightly silly way. And that's how you get through it all but that's just life. Like that's, that's not just days when you've got hectic travel. That's, that's anything. It's like, and and it's so liberating to me because it really is like, there's only one thing you have to do. It's the only one thing you can do. And the only question you ever have to ask yourself is, you know, within the circumstances that I am in now with my resources and my limitations, what's the next, uh, what's the next right thing to do? That's
1: lovely. That's a great place to rest on. I want to point out that Oliver has another great book that we're going to (laughs) explore in another conversation. So look into Oliver Berkman's work all over the place. Can you tell us where people can tap into this? It's all going to be in the show notes. Every single thought leader that Oliver mentioned is going to be in the show notes. We have a great podcast producers at Streamline, but tell us where people can connect with your work and see more.
0: Uh, Well, the main place, I guess, is my website, oliverberkman.com. You can certainly buy 4,000 Weeks and my other book, uh, The Antidote and Help, in all the places you would usually buy your books. At my website, you can find out more about that. Also, read some other things I've written and subscribe to my email newsletter, which I call uh, The Imperfectionist.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. And as always, I hope the connections for goodness and progress that Oliver and I talked about today carry you through your week and you start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about in a new way of thinking about time. Thanks. Have a great week.